This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me. It's podcasts for the weird at heart. You're listening to Keep Screaming, a horror podcast from two best friends dissecting horror movies one by one. My name is Ryan Larson. And my name is Bass. Every two weeks, we will bring you a brand new episode where we dissect a slasher film from top to bottom. We will look at the movie as a whole, going over the story, the casting, music choices, go kill by kill, and then rank it on how it succeeds as a slasher film. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ScreamingCast or by searching Keep Screaming. You can find me at B not B, that's B-E-E, not B-E-A, and Ryan at Ryan Larson. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Castbox, or online at podpeople.me or keepscreaming.com. This week we are dissecting 1985's A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, directed by Jack Shoulder. But first, our pop culture check-in. For new listeners, our pop culture check-in is a chance for you to get to know what we've been watching, reading, and consuming outside of our movie this week, as well as life updates. Um, The only real big life update is we're still in quarantine, Um, self-isolation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, We're trying to bust out a few episodes while we're doing this, so that will probably be a pretty big life thing for maybe two or three episodes, depending on how this all goes. Um... But we decided to forego our usual pop culture check-in this week, and B and I both decided that we to really go into this movie, um, and we got really lucky, like with timing. Um, there is a documentary on this movie uh, called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, um, directed by Roman Chimienti and Tyler Jensen, and it is all about Mark Patton's um, kind of journey leading up to the movie and then how he disappeared for basically like 30 years from Hollywood and then being reintroduced to his legacy that he left with the movie, the legacy that the movie had in general and kind of course correcting um, a very skewed perception of the film. Um, And that's available on Amazon prime. You can rent it for $4. um, Yeah. It's also on voodoo. Yeah, and so we decided to watch that this week instead. Um, Well, I mean, we watched other stuff, but we decided we really wanted to talk about that because it does intrinsically tie into the film. Yeah, it's um, it was on the uh, premiered at Fantastic Fantasmic. What's it called? Fantastic Fest. Fantastic Fest. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, last year, and. you know, I've heard a lot about it. I love doc- I love film documentaries in general. I find the process of making film, I mean, obviously, if I'm in to have a podcast about film, I obviously care about it, but I've always been fascinated by the process of making films. Um, I was you know, like 8 years old and watching the behind the scenes feature on Scooby Doo, like, you know, who does that? Who care? Nobody watches the those features on kids' movies, but I did. Uh, Spy Kids 3D. I was obsessed. I watched that behind the scenes all the time. So obsessed with how they did those um, special effects. So any kind of documentary about 
the making of a film is super interesting to me, especially obviously if it's in the horror realm. And this was not what I was expecting. I was expecting it to be more centered on Nightmare 2 itself, but really it's a doc about Mark Patton. Mm -hmm. It is documented about him and his journey and his, a big part of that journey is being a scream queen and his relationship with Freddie and Nightmare on Elm Street. And I mean, I think the title honestly is rare. Usually titles are rarely perfect for a film. This one's so damn perfect. Like Mm -hmm. it really became a nightmare for him. Um, And yeah, it's like Ray said, it's about sort of what was leading up and you, I was thinking about it while I was watching it and I was like, there's so many movies that we've covered that I wished had a documentary like this. So many questions we've asked and gone like, fuck, I wonder like why this choice was made, what happened. And like, if never sleep again, and if this doc didn't exist and like, if it did, this film did not belong in the franchise of a nightmare on Elm street, which I mean, we'll talk about that, but it like barely does. It's like the black sheep of the franchise. We would never have these documentaries. We would never have as much information about why this movie is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And because we have this, we kind of know what was going on behind the scenes and all those choices that were made. Um, And it's insanely fascinating for that reason. Um, But what, where it shines and like the true like story is like Mark's journey um, as an actor and as a person. And what I think is really beautiful is like how it all comes together in the end. And he takes a lot of acknowledgement for sort of his role that he played in everything while also, you know, encouraging other people to speak up for, the parts that they played in sort of the legacy of this film. Mm-hmm. And that was really the, the, the beautiful thing about it. It wasn't like a blame game. It didn't come out like a lot of bad decisions were made in the making of this film. And I think the doc could have really focused on that. And instead it just focused on like the people and how they experienced it. And I mean, I cried a couple of times is like really moving. Um, and, like, I don't want to give away too much yeah. of, like, the details of it. Um, but, you know, there's a reason Mark left the industry. And uh, it's – that's that's the powerful, powerful part of the film, mm-hmm. I think. The most powerful mm-hmm. is why a kid who – I mean, you wouldn't know by looking at his IMDb or looking up anything unless you were probably, like, around in the early 80s and, like, into it but he was like poised to be the next big thing mm-hmm. and he gave it all up yeah and that's pretty crazy um yeah it's like B said i cried it's very emotional and it's very powerful and it is you know we already have a documentary about the making of nightmare 2 and that's never sleep mm-hmm. again and you know this is about mark's experience and like it's a little bit about everyone else but it really is about him um and Mm -hmm. it's about his experience with making this movie and what it did to him and his and also just why this movie specifically at the time it was made and the implications of it 
forced his hand with decisions he had to make at his life at that point in time. It is, I will say, like a lot of the DNA of this film is going to focus on the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. And mm -hmm. it's um, it's tragic. And it's, it is, um, but it, it, there's a lot of, like, there's a very powerful story here. And I think that, like, Mark really comes into his own by the end and, like, knows... I think he comes away with such, with a really, really strong and powerful message that I think everyone should like see. Like I, and a sense like, of purpose. Yeah, and this is a movie. I will say this too. Like, there are definitely documentaries that I love, like um, Crystal Lake Memory or Chris, Crystal Lake Memories. I think it's called, um, which was made by the same people who made Never Sleep Again. Um, like, I love those docs because they're just like super deep like super deep dive looks at a movie or a franchise. Right. And then there's even an, a, a movie um, called um, the Island of Lost Souls, which was all about the making of um, the Island of Dr. Moreau with, with Richard Stanley and like um, what's his name before he died. It was the last movie he was in Marlon Brando. Um, and that's very fascinating too. But like, those are movies that I'm like, Oh yeah. If you're like a film nerd or if you're like a horror nerd, like these are, you're going to love this. Like, this is a movie I would suggest to anyone because you don't have yeah. to be like, you don't have to enjoy the Nightmare franchise to take anything away from this. Um, yeah. It's just got a very, 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 like, really strong and powerful message behind it. And and by the um, by the end of it, I was just like, oh, this is like, this is more than a horror doc and a movie doc. Like, this is something that people should watch because there's something deeper here. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, I, I would suggest it to any of you. I mean, if you're listening to the show, you're probably a movie or a horror fan. But, like, if Nightmare is maybe not your thing or you don't care for Nightmare 2, like, you know, I'll, I'll be blunt and say, like, I don't love Nightmare 2 either. But, like, this this movie made me walk away from it with a very different look and a lot more respect for the film and I more just for the people behind it, especially Mark Patton. Well, yeah. And I'll get into that as we talk about it. But if anything, like I was saying, understanding, mm -hmm. it just, it just offers a lot of understanding of what was going on. And um, it, you know, presents questions that um, I've always, I don't know if debated, is the right word, but like how much do we project onto art mm -hmm. and how much are we viewing it with a certain lens that we want to see what, and you know, often this film is looked at with a queer lens and it's easy to spot things. And so it's, it's always fascinating to me to be like, is it because of the lens we're looking at something or is it because it is what it is? But I think what this doc helped me realize is that it doesn't really matter if you're projecting onto something because of a lens, because you're still able to see it. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between saying this movie is this and only this. Nightmare 2 is a, you know, homosexual film and it's only that. That's not true. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it through like, you know, a homosexual lens you're going to see those elements mm -hmm. and you can apply that to a lot of things and a lot of art. And that's something I've always struggled with and going like, well, are we projecting that onto the film or is the film actually that? And I think 
this kind of offers perspective and being like, yeah, you might be projecting onto it, but that's okay because you're able to get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think just, that was just a fascinating question. And it gets brought up in the doc sort of like as a quick aside during like a group conversation mm-hmm. um, where a couple of the actors are kind of saying like, well, like it's being seen as more queer because like later and because people want to see it that way. And even Mark was like, well, yeah, you're right. They are. Yeah. They're seeing more into it than maybe is even there. But <sighs> I text Ryan when I was watching it today and I was like, and this is before I watched the docs. So I watched it sort of like fresh again. Obviously I've seen Freddy's too before. I, I will go down and say right now, besides scream, this is my favorite franchise. I love these films like to my core. It's been a while since I've seen this one. Um, it's not one I re- revisit super often. And it's been a while since I've seen the Never Sleep Again doc. Like mm-hmm. a long time. Um, and so I only remember like tidbits, um, like the gist, the 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 general message of it. And I text Ryan. I was like, this film is really gay. Like, mm-hmm. wow. And he's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, but I remember in the documentary them saying like that it's not like they didn't write it that way. And I was like, I don't know what the story is now because I haven't looked into it, but that's what I remember from the doc. Right. And you're like, yeah, and I'm pretty sure it's still that way. I mean, kind of, I think now, but kind of not. Yeah. We find out, but this is all new. Right. No, it is. Yeah. Cause it's post never sleep again. Yeah. Yeah. So 2010 Never Sleep Again came out and it was sort of revealed like, oh, this is a gay horror film. And that whole subtext really got explored and it got sort of championed by the queer community a little bit and became this sort of like, well, yeah, it's a a gay horror film. And then now we have Scream Queen coming out in 2019 and it kind of explains what's been going on the last, you know. 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, when we were watching the doc, that that was the narrative. It's like, no, it wasn't gay. Mark Patton made it gay. Right. And like, I will even say, I was even, I mean, again, I don't want to get too much into Scream Queen because you guys need to watch yeah. it. But I was a little surprised with how to his guns, Jack Shoulder sticks to it, to not recognizing that it was it's gay. And I'm just like, like, there's a lot of things he says that track for me. Like, he went and scouted the bar. The bar, yeah. Yeah, and, like, and like in the daytime, yeah, I get it, no one's there. But, like, look at the scene you're filming in that bar. And then, mm-hmm. and, like, it's it's one of those things where you have to wonder, like, was he so far removed and just so maybe not cultured in the, or not understanding of, of that realm um, that he didn't – he took all these parts. It's not like he's filming it, you know, concurrently. Obviously, we all know it's filmed in, like, chunks and pieces. So, like, is he just filming it? And, like, so they're doing the, you know, the butt-whipping scene with the towels, and he's just thinking, like, yeah, this is, like – you know, this is how Freddie's getting back at the coach. Like, it's kind of from Mark's point of view because, like, obviously this is something teenagers do to each other in the locker room. So it's just, like, it's, it's that – he's, you know, get back at the coach the same way the boys get back at him, you know? And so like, mm-hmm. I, I wonder because he does kind of, he is the only one I say that doubles down on like, I had no idea. And everyone else kind of either reneges or completely is like, yeah, it's, it's very gay. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of them. Well, and Kim Myers who plays Lisa Weber, who um, 
is sort of like the final girl of Freddy's two um, of this one is the only one who's like, I didn't know. But then she backs that up with like, she's like, I'm kind of throwing myself under the bus, but she's like, I was a very naive 19 year old. And I can a hundred percent relate to that. Like if you would have, you know, especially in the eighties, if you would have picked up most like teenagers who, you know, maybe weren't growing up in LA or any kind of metropolis where they weren't exposed to, you know, a vibrant gay culture, which, you know, was big. And and they talk about that in the film too, which I find very interesting, but you know, you maybe wouldn't know. Right. I think that's very easy for her to explain that away a lot different than the man shooting the scenes. Right. Exactly. Or the man writing the script. It's just, it's baffling. It's baffling. It really is. It's part of what makes the whole thing and the documentary about it very fascinating. Because you watch this movie and you go, uh, what the fuck are you talking about? You, uh, I would also highly suggest doing what B and I both did, which is watch Nightmare 2 and then immediately follow it up with the doc. Mm -hmm. Because it just really, to to be that fresh on it really helps you kind of like, it just, you, you're not watching, like, they're playing clips, obviously, of a lot of things, but like, the context is all there and you can see everything. And I think it was like. I really like because I did. I finished Nightmare Two and I immediately put on Wing. Yeah, so um, so if you couldn't tell, the movie we're covering is a Nightmare on Elm Street Two: Freddy's Revenge from 1984. Uh, our synopsis is 85. oh 85. Sorry, uh, our synopsis is Jesse Walsh, played by Mark Patton, moves with his family into the home of the lone survivor from a series of attacks by dream stalking monster Freddy Krueger. Uh, Robert England reprising his role, obviously. There, Jesse is bedeviled by nightmares and inexplicably inexplicably violent impulses. It turns out Freddy needs a host body to carry out his gruesome vendetta against the youth of Springwood, Ohio. While Freddy gains influence, Jesse and his girlfriend, Lisa, played by Kim Myers, race against the clock trying to figure out what's going on. Um, That they do. Yeah. They try and figure out what's going on. I guess. Um, so this was, which is very important, released November 1st, 1985. Do you know why that's important? Because guess when the original Nightmare on Elm Street came out? November 9th of 1984. This movie came out into theaters basically on the year anniversary of the first one. One it year, was one week. Yeah. Written, cast, shot, edited and distributed to theaters it was a mad dash performance i mean they even say it in the doc which was in i thought was that scene that pool scene they filmed it in july and the movie came Mm -hmm. out like four months later that's Mm -hmm. wild like they were still filming this movie four months before it hit a major theatrical release because uh, you know like don't forget too nightmare was a, a smash a box office smash a became a very quick phenomenon and like this it's not like this was like quietly released into like a couple theaters it was just like boom there you go major release picture in mm-hmm. in pretty much less than a year it's insane um so the budget was 3 million a little bit more than the original which was made for 1.8 um and it did uh 30 million um where the original eventually made 57 um so it did extremely well. This yeah. was a huge financial success. Yeah. Um, um, Ten yeah. times its budget? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it smash hit. And at the time, um, 
it had mostly positive reviews. It was mixed. Um, but the big guys like Variety gave the film a positive review saying episodic treatment is punched up by an imaginative, imaginative series of special effects. The standout is a grisly chestburster set piece, which is spectacular. Um, New York Times praised the performances, saying Mr. Pat and Miss Myers make likable teenage heroes, and Mr. England actually turns Freddy into a welcome presence, um, which is obviously what this franchise is going to be known for, rooting for Freddy to just be, you just want Freddy there. Um, the films become about him and less about who he's killing. Um, right now it stands at a 43%. It's hard with these movies because Rotten Tomatoes, like that's also including current reviews. Um, so I like to talk about like what it was like when it came out. Um, and now what it is. So now it currently stands at 43% approval rating, um, saying that an intriguing subtext of repressed sexuality gives Freddy's revenge some texture. But the nightmare loses its edge in a sequel that lacks convincing performances or memorable scares. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I agree with a lot of that, of both mm-hmm. positive and negative. I do mm-hmm. I do think that chestburster scene is excellent. I think a lot of the effects in this are really good, actually. Um, yeah, I think some of the best, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think I actually think like Mark is a really solid character and a good final boy, like Scream Queen too. Yeah. Um, I actually think I mean we'll get into it later. Like I think the movie gets really weak when it's put onto um, Myers. Like yeah. I like she. We we haven't like we don't get time with her as a final girl. She has no real arc. Like yes, she's been with jesse through it like like kind of but i don't know like he i i actually like think his journey is really strong and then we lose him after that chest chest piece really um and he doesn't come back until the end so yeah he kind of disappears and it becomes lisa's story she yeah. becomes she takes over and kind of becomes the final girl who needs to save him from freddie yeah it's yeah. time for her to be the hero here. Mm-hmm. They end up getting kind of split roles. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bunch, and this is part of the reception, and then it will also get into like sort of our sequel talk and our directors, but um, Wes did not come back for this. Um, so obviously he wrote and directed the first film. Um, he, the, I mean, the story is the script was, like, written quickly. Um, It was basically, like, fuck, we need to get another one of these out immediately. Um, Robert Shea was, like, I spent all, every single penny of mine creating Nightmare on Elm Street. And, like, we need to make another movie. Like, I need to um, make some money and we need to make another movie. And he offered it to Wes and Wes was, like, no. I don't like the script. Wes gave notes on the script, um, which come into play in the script, which we can talk about, um, but turned down the role. And he also didn't want, he never imagined Freddy to be a franchise. That was never something he wanted. Um, he didn't want him to become, you know, sort of like a Jason 
um, type character. Uh, that's not what he had envisioned, right? He had this like grand vision for who Freddy was. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made that movie and then he felt like it was time to walk away. And they're like, fuck no. Do you know how much money this movie made? Like we're going to make another one. Um, and he wasn't into it. Um, and he ended up changing his mind and got involved with the third film. But for this one, he walked away. Um, and part of sort of the reception pre these docs of negativity towards nightmare two um, definitely stem from Wes rejecting it. Um, and, you know, he's quoted on saying it that he didn't like the script, that he thought it was silly, that there wasn't a, a true hero of the film because our hero is kind of the villain. Um, that Freddie coming out of the hero really violated the viewer's ability to identify with him. Um, and, you know, he gave his notes and those end up playing a role in the final film. Um, but yeah, so it's always, I mean, Wes is my favorite director, 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's always hard. And if you listen to, uh, we've talked about it a few times. If you listen to Horror Queers, um, they actually did a live um, podcast with Mark Patton and Myers and um, the guy who pl- I believe it's the guy who plays um, Ron. I'm pretty sure um, Robert Ressler, who plays Ron, um, are all on the episode and. Um, you know, Mark kind of calls Wes out and references this. Um, so if you're interested, if this interests you, if you watch the doc and it's all good, like definitely check out that episode of Horror Queers because um, it's just more commentary from Mark about sort of this whole situation when he was promoting Scream Queen. Um, yeah. Anywho. Um, like that. That's the reception. It's, it's funny. It's, it's definitely one of those movies where I wish – I could, was like around in 85 to see firsthand what the public reception was. Mm-hmm. Um, and we live in such a weird time. Uh, funny enough, I just had this conversation with Trace on Twitter. Um, Pre Twitter, even I didn't really have a very good perception of public consensus of films because I lived in a really small town. And a lot of the times, if it was a movie I wanted to see, I had to drive an hour away to go see it unless it was a family movie or, you know, something for the general public. We had six screens. They had to choose what they picked, pretty limited. Um, And I'd rent, like, a lot of stuff on iTunes to be able to consume stuff. And so I didn't really have, like, a great idea of what people were saying or talking about because the internet was really different then. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody was talking about film critique on fucking myspace you know it's just different yeah and so like even i would say the last five years i could easily tell you the perception of most films but really before that a lot harder Mm -hmm. in the 80s yeah i'd be really fascinated to like go back and see like because that's the time where like everybody goes to the theater right and public perception is like literally what the town is buzzing and what your newspaper is saying like that's public perception your newspaper is going to print about it and talk about it and you're going to turn on like the news and the news will talk about it if it's a controversy which it was if it was a horror movie you know ebert's going to go on there and say like 
you know, how terrible it is and how damaging it is for the public. So, um, hey, it's fascinating. Like, uh, new nightmare. <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. So it's fascinating to see, like, in a, when a movie is, like, perceived a certain way, like, is it because it's been perceived that way now? Mm-hmm. Or is that how it was perceived in the 80s? Yeah. And I, I know they try to, like, show a little bit, too, but, like, it's just they show a lot of how it was perceived after it got picked up as like a a, a queer horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so like they showed once the the narrative had been like picked up and moved in that direction specifically. So it would be interesting to see like just as as a like a nightmare movie, like what like what people were saying about it because we all know now. Um, and you know, like keep in mind too, like we're not queer (laughs) so i mean and we're we're again analyzing this movie from the lens of as our particular lens is how does this Mm -hmm. operate as a slasher movie you know like we are not here like i really want to make that like a very important note like we're not here to say whether we like this movie or not whether that make should change the impact it had on anyone's like journey in any way so like i just mm-hmm. i just think that's like really important because that was i've always felt that way but even like more so after watching that doc and like seeing uh, scores of queer people talk about how this movie what it means to them like i just mm-hmm. want to double down right now very early on and say like what we are saying about this film has nothing to do with any of that or is a slight on that or or anything um and that that's yeah and any yeah no that is important we talk about this film through literally the lens of how does it work as a slasher movie Mm -hmm. and then any commentary we provide is through our own personal lenses which we are both you know white and straight and come from a small town in northern california that's our that's our personal lens and you know all of this commentary that we're offering is because we've done our research and know what, you know, we're allies and we know what, you know, our friends in the queer horror community are saying. Like, you, if you want to hear from that perspective, which you should, mm-hmm. like I said, Horror Queers has an episode about it and Attack of the Queer Wolf um, early on when they first started um, have an episode on it as well. It's funny, um, we actually and- asked our producer and friend Brennan to be on it. Um, because Brennan can is has been there to help us view things through a queer lens before and like even when we just have sometimes we just have questions and like thank goodness we have such a an amazing friend who understands that like we're never coming at it from like an ignorant point of view like we are genuinely like want to know um but we're like hey do you want to come on for this and he's like i'm tapped out on he's like i've talked about it so much and i was like that i i understand because it has yeah, become such a queer yeah. icon movie for, yeah. for the horror community no for sure yeah it's like when we meet non-horror fans and they're like oh yeah so what do you think of and like you know they'll name off the top hole you know, horror films are like, yeah, of course I want to talk about those, but like, I can talk about other stuff too. Yeah. I don't know, just know things about Freddy or Jason or, you know. Yeah. It's like, you want to watch, things. you want to watch The Carpenter or Iced? <laughs> right? Yeah. How about curtains? Yeah, exactly. Um, we have our, 
like we mentioned on the last episode, Matthew Joseph Peake, who has done a poster for the first six installments of the film franchise. Um, so he is back for this one uh, before B gets, you know, her in, in like her real graphic design eye on it. I will just say, even though this isn't one of my favorite films, this poster I love because it reminds me so much of like an R.L. Stein book cover. It looks yes. like, yeah, it looks like it, it should does. be, yeah, it looks like it should be the cover of a Fear Street book. Oh my God, you totally like, what is it? Put the nail on the head. What's that expression? Sure. Pinned the nail, nail on the head. Hit the, yeah. hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Hit, hit the nail. Pinned it, whatever. Um, I was almost there. Uh, because I was like, you know, it looks like something. Not, it's totally looks like a, like a Goosebumps book. Mm-hmm. But like the the teen goosebump books, yeah, yeah. the fears, what fear street, fear, yeah, fear street, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Ooh. So I and another thing I noticed, which I've never noticed before, that I really like about this is the fr- like the interpretation of Freddy is the same as the first poster, mm-hmm. the like weird skull. It changes, I think, after in the third one we we get Freddy. It's more right? Freddy, yeah, yeah. So it's so strange. He still always does the really big eyeball thing. Like that's a trademark thing. But his face is like distinctively more Freddy. Yeah. Yeah. The first, like the original poster, you would never really associate that with Freddy at all. Even the glove looks weird. And like even on this one, right? Like you can't see the leather in the glove. And like it's really – guys, words are escaping me. Um, elongated. Holy mother! I can't believe I could not think of that word. Um, like the uh, claws, the, the blades in his glove are really like exaggerated and elongated, and you know it's not actually what it looks like in the film. It's so strange, especially like a classic sequel poster is going to throw the most iconic. Like, look at Friday Thirteenth Part Two poster, right? Like, you're going to just be like, fuck, what is going to get people who came to see the first one and loved it back in the theaters? What's going to bring them back? And that, you know, Friday the 13th poster too, when like when we talked about it, we're just like, fuck, it's like disappointing, right? It's just like kind of a carbon copy of it. It's like they ripped off their own poster. And so it's so strange that they didn't take that route. They're not like, fuck, put Freddy on it. That's terrifying. That's what everybody was terrified of. You have no other returning characters. like, And that's what you're going to bank on. And then this doesn't show it at all. The only thing it has, which is what I mentioned in our last episode when we covered the original, is it has the iconic type treatment. Mm-hmm. It has the the... Well, it's not the logo. They actually have a logo too, but they have this type treatment that they've created that you can see that's familiar. Um, But I find that very fascinating. Um, It's a much different approach for a second poster. And I wonder if it's because they have like an illustrator um, and how much creative control they gave him in the art department. Um, I don't know, but I love this poster. Uh, It's, it speaks to what's going on in the movie the only thing I don't like is what's up with the fucking crow. Yeah, the crow is weird. Um, do, I, do I not remember that in the movie? Uh, I mean, unless I missed it, but I—I I mean, There's I literally just rewatched it today. Yeah. yeah, maybe just because it's like but, ominous. Mm, yes, the ominous crow. Yeah. Um, the lightning. I mean, at least we get in the opening scene. Yeah. But um, 
I will say though, the the man of your dreams is back type treatment is horrible. Well, it looks Absolutely like a paper book horrible. novel cover. That's why I distinctly yeah. went fear screen. And so I get what they did. They had to break the text because they didn't want to run it into the crow. But one is should not be capitalized. There really shouldn't be a period, but it's fine. You can have it there. But to break the text like that, instead, they could have just made it smaller and it would have worked so much better. But it has to be big and large and in your face. But fuck, if you take off the tagline, which it's not bad. I don't hate the tagline. The man no. of your dreams is back. Yeah, pretty like good. It. It's mm-hmm. clever. Um, Because, I mean, he is the man of your dreams. Just, you know, they're playing with that um, saying. But that that needs to go away. It needs to go away. You could take away the crow and I'd be really happy. Look at that. And yeah, look at that shadow, like of the window. Oh, yeah. No, it's all great. It's really nice. Mm -hmm. Look at her booty. Yeah, I was going to say she's got the sheer dress with the underwear. Like it's sexual, but not overtly sexual. Just like on the first one where you can tell Nancy is like topless, but it's Mm -hmm. not like sexual. Um, And I mean, I got to give it up to like to Matthew Peake. this looks like Jesse and Lisa. Like they look exactly yes. like they look mm-hmm. like their characters, which I really yes. appreciate. Like it looks like Nancy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate that. That's big perks because God knows how many fucking posters we looked at. I'm like, who is that? What character is that? The character yeah. not fucking exist in this movie. Fuck you. Who is this person? <laughs> um, the other taglines we got the first name in terror returns. That's obviously just the studio trying to bank on Freddie's like bankability there. Um, and trying to say, you know we're first but obviously like come on guys um also the, some of my favorites the way too obtuse and long ones someone is coming back to elm street he is not friendly he is not patient and he is not a welcome visitor but he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block um that's so bad and then mm-hmm. freddy krueger is back on elm street watch out for him he'll be in your neighborhood soon that sounds like specifically like something someone like said on a television commercial yeah like on a yeah. trailer which makes me not hate it it'd be shitty on a poster but i like it for a commercial for a commercial it's fine he, he will be in your neighborhood soon he's gonna yeah. be in your theater right and for that i like but the whole new kid on the block one is terrible yeah yeah mm. Um, obviously six sequels, Nightmare 3 through Freddy vs. Jason, and then the remake, A Nightmare on Elm Street, which came out in 2010. Um, our director for this one is Jack Shoulder. Um, so his debut was Alone in the Dark, which I believe we are actually covering soon. Uh, yes. yeah. Um, he also did The Hidden... Yeah, Renegades, Wishmaster 2, which I actually like, Arachnid. His last credit was in 04, it's 12 Days of Terror. Um, interesting notes you included here. Wow. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we already talked about how he claims naive, naive, naivety um, with knowing it was queer subtext. Um, he. Yeah, I don't know if we should, should we say this or should let people watch the doc? I, I think, um, yeah, we'll let people watch the doc. But he does, he does claim yeah. that to this day, he still claims that he didn't know he was yeah. shooting anything with even queer subtext. It's not even, he doesn't even, he's not even saying, oh, I, I didn't know I was making a queer film. Like I saw the subtext, but he straight up's like, I didn't even see the subtext, um, mm-hmm. which I, I do think is very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, we don't know his life. So. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so take that as as what you may. But, um, and yeah, I'll be you interested. can make your own assessments. Yeah, I'll be and interested watch to watch his other movies, too. So Yeah. Um, so I also saw some notes. Um, like, Arachnids really, I mean, besides Wishmaster 2, as a horror fan, I know that one. But Arachnids, like, one that I think you would know that that was a pretty big movie. And, of course, he goes on record saying that's, like, his least favorite movie and he's more proud of like alone in the dark and um he lists a couple other films um yeah so you know not much his uh alone in the dark is a slasher um did and then he did this yeah so um he's yeah he's in the dock you can make your assessment on what role he played in all of this but I have when we when we talk about let's see I'm trying to figure out if now is a good time to, I have notes about I think in the end I just have notes about him as a director in general I don't I think there's a reason he has so many few credits let me just say that <laughs> anywho uh, yeah <laughs> um and then David Chaskin is the writer um this is his writing debut he'd never written anything before I. Maybe this isn't Never Sleep Again. It's been way too long since I watched it to remember such a specific detail. But how the fuck did he get this movie? Do you remember? Oh, no idea. I can't. I've n- like, you feel like he'd have to know, like, Bob or something, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, Bob would have had to been like, I need another Nightmare movie, like, right now. Right. Write me a script. Right. I wonder if he was um, an in-house writer at New Line, maybe? At New Line. I'm trying yeah. to see. So I'm Madman. I'm trying to see if it was a New Line movie. I'm going to look that up while you talk about him. Yeah. So um, he has six total credits. Really, the the ones of note are The Curse in 87 and I, Madman in 1989. Um, yes. And as we've talked about, I mean, he's infamous for denying that he wrote the script with any gay subtext. Um he joke, you know, quote unquote, joked um, that he was writing it as like a like a warning against homophobia. So it's like he denied the gay subtext. Then later, in, was interviewed and said, "Well, actually, like no, he said it, my it, it was a joke. He joked that it was a movie about homophobia, right? Like he right. he said it should be played at like gay conversion camps, yes, to scare people yeah, away so- from being gay, yeah." Yeah, that okay. they know yeah, exactly. Like, this is, like, a homophobic film. Right, right, that, right, right, yes. Um, and that you should be, um, as a warning of homophobia, like, be afraid of people who are gay because they are the enemy. They are the Freddy Krueger. They are bad. When he was called out on that, he said he was joking. I'm not really sure what that means. Um, I don't know how you can joke about your film playing at a conversion therapy. That's not a joke, but whatever. Um, Now he has come out and said he did intentionally write it to have gay subtext. That it was meant to be subtext and not be like the complete narrative of the film, just underlying themes. Right. And he heavily infers that Mark is the reason it went from subtext to text. Yes. Um, he, because at the time, uh, Mark was not out. He is currently an out um, gay man. Um, in in 18, 1885, ooh, 
definitely wouldn't have been out in 1885, but he was also not out in 1985. Um, and he says, because he was gay, he made it gay. Um, which also, like I said, make your own assessments of these things. Like I have my thoughts on that. I, I mean, I think that's shitty. Mark has the entire doc is really about his feelings towards all of these comments. Um, but yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I would say, like, watch the doc, because Jack Shoulder and David Chaskin are two of the more interesting personalities introduced in there, and I would say I had, like, a lot of feelings about them, and I think Mark makes a really good point, and, like, I'll leave it at that, but he does say, like, the things that are, like, have been pointed out as, like, really gay in the movie, like, quote-unquote, like, really gay things, like, he, like, at the, there's a point where he says, well, the director didn't tell me not to do that. And I'm like, yup, like that's a great yeah, point. Which, yeah, yeah, which is part of like definitely what I want to like comment on when we talk sort of about the plot and choices that were made is that there was a lot of things left unsaid right. and not done in this film. You can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big one. Yeah. Um, it's a lack of direction, honestly. Mm-hmm. A, a real, real lack of – it was a, an inexperienced director who did not know what he was doing. And, and was given no time. Was given no time to try and figure it out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he even says he, he had an anxiety attack the entire pre-production. I think it's partially well acted. I still think there's stuff that I don't love in this. Um, well, there's a lot really, of stuff I don't love in this. Well, like as an act from an acting perspective, I really, I actually just really don't like Kim Myers. Um, and it, like, I think she's kind of sleepy the whole movie. Um, and like, I don't like really like her performance. I, I actually think like the guys carry this movie. I, I, I think Jesse and, um, his friendship with, uh, like Ron is one of the best parts of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. how, how they start off like not getting along. And then it's just like, they begrudgingly kind of become friends. Like, yeah. um, so I, I think it's, but again, we'll get to that when we like move on to the movie too. And like kind of rank it. Cause that, that there's a lot that plays into that. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Christopher Young did the score. Uh, he would go on to have a very successful genre career, as well as things outside of the genre. But he did Sinister, Drag Me to Hell, Pet Cemetery uh, remake from 2019. He also did Swordfish. Um, so I very. Feel like we've done a movie with him before. I'm sure we. I because I feel like we've talked about Sinister before. Yeah. I mean, I personally think Sinister is one of the scariest scores ever oh. in a horror movie. So it's just one of the scariest movies ever. Yeah. No, that's true. Um. Who was like I, was I haven't I still haven't rewatched it because I'm just too scared. Oh, I've rewatched it like maybe twice, but I mean both times have like it's not like it got any less. Oh, or he did Urban Legend. So mm. yeah, very very prolific in the genre. Um, and it and this score is very mm. different, um, than the original score. Uh, by who who is that? Uh. Was it Bernstein? Is that his name? Um, who did the original? Yeah, Charles. Yeah, it is. I like while listening to this, I did recognize that it's very, very different. It's way less synthy, and um, mm-hmm. I mean, Young is known using. He's known for using like an orchestra, and it does play a like. It does feel a lot more full um, than the first film did. Um, and we also got a returning cinematographer. Things, right. 
What? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Ignore me. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, and then we have a returning cinematographer with Jacquez Hatkin, who did the original. Um, and then he was also, he did a lot of camera and electrical department work um, for movies like Fate of the Furious, Kong Skull Island, Venom, 21 Bridges. Um, so very successful. And um, Christopher Tufty also on this one, who did more TV work and for Cam and Electrical Department, as well as Repo Man, Critters, and A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. True, true. Um, and then the editing team was Bob Brady and Arlene uh, Garcon. Um, and Garcon did Alone in the Dark, um, which was another one of Jack Tolder's films, as well as... Um, I lost my place. Um, House of the Shadows in 1970. And then the special effects team um, have, you know, kind of done like a variety of things, but this is definitely what they're known for, um, is Richard Albane, Paul Boyington, Rick Lazzarini, Ron Neri, and Kevin Yeager. And, you know, practical effects are king, and this movie does them really well. Yeah, this movie basically gives us a – a werewolf transformation scene, but with Freddy instead. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, it is like a standout scene in the movie, by the way, guys, just so you know, if we're a little off, um, B and I record, we're practicing social distancing. Um, so we are recording like uh, over the internet, which we don't normally do. We are usually um, right next to each other. Um, so it is, it, forgive us if there's a little bit of talking over each other, we still have cameras, you know, um, so we can see each other, but there's still the lag of the internet. So, uh, the internet. So, yeah. Sorry. Uh, Mark Patton. This is going to be our new normal. So get used to it. Yeah. Because once I move this is what we're going to have to do. So, um, but the move is pushed back. So, I mean, not for another couple months at least. He's never uh, leaving me. <laughs> You're going to go all misery on me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to have to do the podcast and be like, I'm uh, in Long Beach now. Uh, definitely mm-hmm. not in B's guest room with no, my chain to the my, bed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have a very interesting, different um, situation here that we've, we haven't really run into. So we have a final boy and a final girl. Um, mm-hmm. And so Mark Patton is Jesse Walsh, our final boy. Um, who we discussed at the beginning, he quit the business amid AIDS crisis and a homophobic Hollywood. Um, and then he became an advocate um, and a very like proud gay ally, obviously, or um, gay champion, like um, after the Never Sleep Again doc. Before this, he was in a lot of commercial work. Um, he was mm-hmm. also in um, a Broadway a um, musical with Cher, directed by Robert Altman, that later went to the screen, um, and I can't remember what it's called. Um, but he had a burgeoning career right before this. This was one of his like very first leading man roles. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was like the perfect look for the 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really was. He – and, you know, they make a comment – which you can totally tell in the dancing scene in this film. Um, the like, yeah, risky business had just come out. Like, you know, cute little Tom Cruise. You know, he had these thin, like, you know, smaller guys that were, you know, had six packs and were attractive and, you know, dancing around and 
that's that's what they wanted Mark to be. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the movie is um, come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. And like I said, it was um, I mean, he knew Cher <laughs> like um, it's yeah, he was definitely on like like we said, uh, he was a rising star before the movie came out and kind of derailed those mm-hmm. plans. Yeah, but this was his big debut, mm-hmm. like uh, for film. Yeah. Um, and also, then Kim Myers. Yeah, go for it. Um, as Lisa Weber, um, this was her debut. Um, not much in her um, credit line, but for horror fans, she was in Hellraiser Bloodline from 1996, which I don't know how much of a role she played because I've not seen that movie. Um, we had Robert Russler as Ron Grady, who, uh, had like, was kind of like one of those eighties, like late eighties, early nineties, like popped up in quite a few things. He was in weird science. Um, sometimes they come back. Uh, is this the new light as a feather? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't even yeah. like recognize that. That's, that's so cool. I thought it was so funny cause I just talked about light as a feather last week. In last episode, and he's in it as Mr. Morris. Yeah. Uh, and Clue, so cool. Gallag- uh, Clue Goliger, sorry, as Ken Walsh. Uh, Clue is very, very well known um, in in horror specifically. Um, he's been in a lot mm-hmm. of films, a lot of movies. Um, he was in Return of the Living Dead, Last Picture Show, Piranha 3 Double D. Like he has a very successful and tenured career in the horror genre. Um, let's see. Um, and then we have uh, Melinda O'Fee as Mrs. Weber, Tom McFadden as Eddie Weber, Sidney Walsh as Carrie, and then, of course, Robert England returning as Fred, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger. Right. Um, and then oh, man, over Marshall Bell, sorry, as Coach Snyder. Um, oh, yes. How could I forget Coach Snyder? Right. Um, he's delightful. Like, in all the con scenes um when they do like the reunion i just thought he was so adorable how proud he's like wearing the shirt um and and he like is like oh yeah i knew it was super gay (laughs) like he like Uh he's totally um and he you'll recognize him right away because he's been Mm -hmm. in he's one of those guys that's just like in a ton of he has a very like hardened looking face and so he's used in like roles like he's always like you know like in this he's the gym coach but he's used a lot like as like a commanding officer in the army like in starship troopers and total recall he that's like the role he plays you know um it is a super supernatural slasher movie it is also uh, a teen scream very much like the first one um a nord a notable subgenre that this kind of adds in um or it definitely adds in but is different than most of the other um nightmare movies is it's very much a like possession movie too mm-hmm. um, like mainly that's yeah um because that so. is freddie's path in this film which like we mm-hmm. discussed like when we are going to analyze this film we're going to analyze it well as its own and then of course we have to talk about the one that came before because that's going to alter how this one exists but for the most part we try and stay like okay, how does this film by itself work? And so, but each movie, the rules for Freddy kind of change and like 
how he can come into the world, how he can haunt dreams. That's all sort of dependent on the film that he's in. So what we know about Freddy in this movie is that he cannot kill unless he is possessing Jesse. And then if he can get into Jesse, he can physically kill in the real world, not Mm -hmm. in dreams, but in the actual real physical world, but through Jesse. Right. That's how Freddy plays in this one. Yeah. Um, so Freddy is obviously our returning killer, and he will be through the entire franchise. Our Springwood slasher, our serial serial killer children. At one point in the movie, I know um, uh, his girlfriend. What I keep mixing up her real name and her movie name. Uh, Lisa? Lisa. Yeah, she says like he killed twenty kids. I'm like, holy shit, that's a fuck ton of kids. That's a lot of children to murder. They say uh, that in the first movie too. Twenty. There were twenty. Uh huh. Why mm-hmm. did it take so long to catch him? That is what I'm wondering. The Springwood police force is really, whew. I mean, just saying, 20 kids, that's a lot of children, man. Um, what? Right, we talked about that. that. That's a trope. Questions. I know, it's just, I know, the useless, useless. What? Okay, I'm sorry, guys. My Siri, for some reason, thinks I'm talking to it. My bad. Um, yeah, so it's ready. Siri. I don't know what I'm saying. great. you talk <laughs> we're just constantly stuck in technological hell uh, that is the future that we live in um again his iconic weapon is his glove with knives he uses that a lot in this film um and i think we'll probably do what we did for the last movie and instead of going like through the whole plot we'll talk sort of kill by kill and whatever details of the plot we need to fill in to make that make sense, we will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this film is the highest body count of any nightmare film. They're not known for their body counts. That's not what – these are very much stock films. Well, um, and they're known for their creative set pieces. Kills, yeah. Set pieces and their kills. Um, I mean, that's – part of what makes a slasher a slasher is the creative kills and the movie being wrapped around that. So as long as those kills are elaborate and there's buildups to them, it's okay if there's a few. Um, That's why we were able to rank the original so high is because even though there were very few kills, there was so much of the movie that focused on those or built up to them or so much time spent on the kills themselves that it was still the main focus of the film, if that makes sense. Um, But our first film, our first film, fuck, guys. Our first kill is not until 36 minutes in. It takes so long. Yeah, there's a lot of buildup in this. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with this whole idea of Freddy having to be able to take Jesse over. And like getting mm-hmm. even just even getting that like plot line across is a really big mm-hmm. like because it's so drastically different from the original. And so they have to almost set up this. Whereas every other movie after this, we don't have to spend a lot of time learning anything about Freddy really because like we know the folklore and the mythos. And like this one could have done that, um, but they took such a different route with things that 
we have to spend all this time getting to know Jesse and understanding that he moved into Nancy's old house. And then like, he finds this old diary. So he's, that's kind of how they're figuring these things out. Um, and then, yeah, they just do a lot of interesting things. And he's like having these nightmares since he moved into the house. So it's almost like, which we know he's haunting the children of Elm street. Like, Freddy's very much based in a place, which is a, another big slasher trope. Um, very much so tied to a certain location, just like Jason is to Crystal Lake. Um, and Michael is to Haddonfield. Like they're very focused in, they don't go out. Uh-huh. We can ignore fucking Manhattan. They don't go out. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> apparently the lake is connected to. Well, I mean, then, like, if Freddy's dead, they notice it's not in Springwood, and they're like, every town has that Elm Street, you know? Like, there's a way you can play around with things. Right, which, you know, when you get, you know, seven, eight movies in, you start doing that, right? You start going, like, well, fuck. You know, we can't have people keep living on Elm Street. There's only so many houses on the street. Um, But that's sort of, like, so much they have to pack into it, like, Moved into this house. I'm the new kid. I've got nightmares. I'm the new kid, but somehow I have this girlfriend who already seems to be in love with me. And it's like for for having so much time with our characters in the beginning, like you know very little about anybody except for Jesse. Mm-hmm. Right. It's which, yeah. Yeah. Um which is why like it's really interesting because what this movie does so differently than a lot of slashers, especially a lot of slashers, like when you have something like um, Scream, for instance, and you're and you're following Sydney, or even like the first, like the the two I know movies, like you know Julie enough, like that you don't really have to do like you don't have to spend a lot of time with backstory. So a lot of the times what you start seeing though, is when you have films like Halloween or Friday or Freddy or nightmare, um, less and less focus on your main characters because it's really becoming about how are we getting to the kills? Um, and like, mm-hmm. they do spend a lot of time with Jesse in this, which is something like it's noticeable in, I think, cause like, I think Friday actually does that too because I like I think our you know our final girl in the second movie is like better than our final girl in the first movie because they spend so much time building her up as a character it's not until later that they start to lose that and like people will argue that Alice and like other characters in Nightmare are just as powerful I think after three we really start to lose that like yes we still follow them as main characters but we like they're a vessel to carry a plot a lot along um and like this movie is definitely very different because we do spend so much time like literally building up Jesse as a character, um, which is something you just don't normally see. I feel like in a sequel to um, something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do like commend them for that because I do think like Jesse actually works really well as our lead. Um, mm-hmm. And, and we touched on a little bit, like they shoot themselves in the foot really hard because in the last literally the crux of the movie the entire climax jesse's gone and we're following lisa who up to this point has basically been like yes she exists as jesse's girlfriend but like really her only character plot line is kind of like she wants jesse to be more attracted to her i guess um (laughs) 
like i mean she she's helping him find out like the stuff she's going with him but like like the only thing like even rewatching it today i was like she really just like like she is like way more sexual than he is and she like really wants that part of their relationship to advance um but up until like when she the whole like ending part comes in i'm like her character doesn't really do anything. She's existed mm-hmm. to like fill in plot holes because she's lived here longer than him. Mm-hmm. She's there as a device to explain history to him. Right. Yeah. Um, which like the whole town kind of knows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and our first kill is 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 Coach Snyder um, after after Jesse has a dream where he goes to a gay bar where Snyder is. Um, and like Snyder busts him. And that's another thing this movie does that I don't like. It blurs the lines of reality and dream way too much for me. Like, mm-hmm. because like I'm fine with blurring those lines, but I'm not fine when I don't understand the rules anymore. I'm like, wait, he's dreaming that he's at this gay bar, but then Schneider busts him and actually makes him run laps at the school for it. So was he sleepwalking? Did did he dream it and then woke up and Freddie teleported him there? Like, I don't really understand the real world consequences. The the logic doesn't exist in this one in the same way that it existed in the first one, where they're blurring the lines between, which is what's so scary and magical about the first film is that you're constantly going like fuck is she dreaming is she awake is this really happening um is freddie gonna come in the stream but guess what there's always a wake up there's always a moment where you realize like the dream is over while you're in the dream you might be confused for a second of going like what's real what's gonna come into the real world like that's always what we're playing with is like right. how much of freddie is in the dream and how much is he going to come out of the dream or how much is he going to affect the real world because of the dream. And in this film, it's more like, uh, we don't really know because Freddie's also in Jesse. Right. So that's how they're getting away with it. The rule in this one is as the movie go, or at least how I interpret it is that, as the movie goes on, Freddie is possessing more and more of Jesse. And mm-hmm. so he has more and more of a grasp in the actual real world. Right. Because like a lot of this movie is spent with where it feels like he's like sleepwalking. Be- but mm-hmm. like under under because like he, you know, goes to his sister's bed um, and like he and then you know like he goes to the gay bar um and but like we we know he's dreaming when he goes there but then he's there so it, it almost feels more like he's sleepwalking than like a dream per se and so like that's something too that i think too a, you know like again it'd be interesting to see what it was like in in 85 because you're a year removed from a movie that was a massive hit like so people in like Freddie became an instant icon. So people like understand the rules of the first movie. So to, to move in such a different direction. Um, and like, I know that's always been a big detractor for me in this. And, and like, we'll get even further into it. Um, so we get our first death with coach Snyder, who while Jeff, this is all weird. Schneider catches him at a gay bar and then it's hella late at night, but it doesn't matter. He takes him to the school to run laps. And then while he's taking a shower, hella late at the school, um, Schneider is tied up. And like with towels, um, 
or with like cords. He's tied up to the shower while the shower is running on him. And these towels whip his butt over and over again, like really, really harshly though. Like, um, mm-hmm. like, like basically, whipping. yeah, like whipping him. And then Freddie like shows up whipping. finally and like slices his back open. Um, and he's dead. And then Jesse's left standing there with, with the glove. And yeah, and so that's when we, as an audience, start questioning, did Jesse do that? Because we don't know yet. Did Jesse do that and he's going crazy or did Freddy? Right. But because we have the knowledge of the film before, we're like, oh, it's Freddy, right? right. It's Freddy doing this to him. What is interesting is like, without a doubt, ignoring any other subtext that may exist in this film coach snyder is a predator a predator yeah i mean can you really see him as any other way in this film especially in this scene i mean is he preying on him though or is he just it seems like it i don't i don't know i don't know it's weird it's it's weird, and I think it's just because, like, they was so slapdash together that they, like, have to make this work. And, like, because, I mean, it's not like he's, like, watching him shower. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, he, and, like, he's very obviously, at least in, you know, like, what they say, he's into the BDSM scene or whatever, or S&M mm-hmm. scene. Um, and so, like, he's into that. He's in a leather bar, essentially, you know? Um, right. And so... And so I don't know if he's like a predator though. I think he's just, I don't know. I just think, which I get it. Like how much can you say is just them, but like I ignoring watching the film, ignoring what decisions may have been made by like behind the scenes, you have a character who catches a high school student at a bar that, you know, I mean, even a regular old bar, you're usually there to, drink and pick up somebody and whatever you then take this student in the middle of the night back to the school and force like a punishment on him and then have him go to the showers while you go get like a jump rope and like it all like for me watching it it very much felt like he was setting up a scene of attack himself like hmm. that's what it feels for me. Like. I guess I read it more like, right. I guess for me, I read it more like he, cause it implies like it, it implies further than just like a leather bar. Like he would, like, I think he gets off on either being dominant or submissive. And so he, that's why he enjoys his position as a coach is because he gets to dominate these people. So I don't know if like, mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, that's still being a predator. Like you're, you know, like, but I don't know if he was yeah. going to I mean, to he's be... taking – I don't know. I'm not necessarily saying he could be a sexual predator, but he's – I mean, I got those vibes for sure. But he is taking this student into, like, a position of the fact that he's going to, I mean, physically punish him. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean – it's Yeah. Yeah, it's and that's the only thing that's like super straightforward in the film, and that's why it kind of stands out. Like the rest, you can literally read as subtext, like Jesse dancing and like all the other shit. But this is literally the only thing in the movie 
that you're like, this feels like really. Right. And they, especially like they go out of their way to make it a leather bar and to imply that he's into S and M and like, it is, it is very, I don't know. Some parts of this, a lot of this movie doesn't make sense to me. Like so much of this movie. Um, yeah, so this is where, like, after, like, Jesse goes to school the next day, um, and they find out the coach is dead, so he is, like, very much aware that he was dreaming, or was awake, um, and that this is real, because he was in, like, sort of the state of shock, like, he was found on the highway wandering home naked, um, and he's in the shock, and he doesn't really know, like, what, he's not even sure what reality and, like, um, like his dreaming life are, um, but it's confirmed here, so he, um, you know, like, this is when they go and they go to the boiler room and like they are investigating Freddie um, because he's trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and then like in the midst of all this, um, Jesse's having a pool party or uh, Lisa's having a pool party. And, uh, and Jesse starts to feel a change in him. So he leaves cause he doesn't want to hurt her. And he goes to um, Ron's house and, um, and this is another part for me, like, so he, um, he's, you know, he does the classic nightmare move, which is, hey, I'm going to fall, like, if, if I, if something weird starts happening to me, you got to wake me up, you know? And the friend is like, okay, pal, and doesn't believe him because it sounds, you know, a too, too wild to be true. And then sure enough, it is true. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so this is where we get our next kill, um, and it's Jesse. Jesse falls asleep for like a moment before he realizes that falling asleep has caused his body essentially to be weak enough for Freddie to like take over. Um, and he wakes up. And this is again like where I just kind of lose a lot in this movie because Ron is like banging on the door and like screaming for his parents. And like Freddie has this like awesome transformation scene where he literally like claws out, like the arm slowly transforms, mm-hmm. the the, finger, the claws pop out of the fingers. We see Freddie's eye in Jesse's mouth. It's an incredible, awesome, um, practical effects piece. And like Freddie comes out and it's all really cool. But then like, I'm like, okay, so it's Freddie in reality now, or is this a dream? And like, cause there is some dream logic applied, like the door won't open on either side. Um, and like, it feels a lot like a dream. A lot of the framing, a lot of the like color and like camera technique feels like a dream. And then like, once we get later into the movie, we see that Freddie has the somehow now ability to carry some of his dream powers into reality. So I'm like, okay, so this now referencing back to this scene, I'm like, that was reality because we Mm -hmm. learned later that Freddie can carry these powers over. And then, but like, again, it does, and it does the whole thing where he like looks in the mirror and he waves and he flash back and it's just, it's jesse again and it's like okay like i don't i just i don't like it it's it's a cool <laughs> scene it's a cool scene but i just like it 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 doesn't help me make any sense of what's going on and like it's a cool kill like i mean it's very like scary like freddie's very scary in this scene um you know like mm-hmm. i will give this movie he a lot still of credit. remains pretty scary in this movie Right, like this doesn't bounce. Like he hasn't become a yuckster yet. Like he no. and like we, you can tell because like they're still using That's that not like three. Yeah, and he, they're still using that voice effect on him that makes it sound like you know very much like demonic and deeper. And like his appearance is still very like like 
you know, freshly scarred um, and like. Yeah, I feel like he talks less in this one than he did in the original. Maybe not, but it it has a perception of that. that. Yeah. And like also yeah. like his glove is barely a part of this. Like the almost the whole movie his his like Jesse is wearing the glove, but Freddie is usually mm-hmm. seen with the claws popping out of his fingers. Mm-hmm. Um But I don't know. So like so he kills Ron and like then runs so then he runs back to the pool party. Um for some reason after killing Ron, that's what he decides to do is go back to the pool party. Um and he's trying to tell Lisa what's going on. And they realize, Lisa realizes that it's Jesse's terror that's giving Freddy his strength. So he needs to stop being afraid. But he can't, obviously, because everything that's going on. Um, and then, like, he attacks, like, Freddy comes out again and he tries to attack Lisa. But he realizes he can't because of Jesse's love for him. And then, oh, man, I'm really just trying to not be so negative on this movie. But then there's this, like, scene... <laughs> Uh, so he like he goes to attack her and he can't and like he like Jesse kind of like throws him out the door while inside of him and he disappears and like the party's all still going on at this point and like Lisa's parents are like banging on her bedroom door going like what's going on and the party's going on and all these people are out there and they're like looking because they saw Freddy be like pushed out of this door or like jump through this door and he explodes through the patio or through like the, like the deck by the pool. And mm-hmm. all logic goes grand out the party interest. Window. Yeah. Like everything that ever, everything we've ever known about Freddie is just gone. Like everything we've ever known just from one movie or ever learn later on. is just like, nothing applies here. And like, sometimes I wonder, I know, but I kind of love it. No, I hate it. I hate this it. This pool scene, of, I love it. It's one of my biggest pet peeves in movies. It's I know like you hate when they establish rules and then break them. I know. Break them. And then, like, I I wonder sometimes if we didn't have six more Freddy movies after this, maybe I would feel different. And, like, that is a bias that, like, I can't uh-huh. erase because, like, they yeah. go. They this film is ignored. Yeah. Right, and they established so many rules since then, and like we all mm. very distinctively know that once Freddy comes out, like he's he's he has no not, powers. Right, he's powerless. He's still a murderer, yeah. and he's still intelligent, but like he's he's essentially powerless. Um, yeah. Like well, even in Freddy versus Jason, he carries like a little bit of like athleticism and super strength with him, but he doesn't have the manipulation. No. And this, no, he's and that's why... water on fire, and he's like yeah. all, all the. Fences uh-huh. are electric now, and fires no, flying exactly. up. That's why shit. looking at this film with like the perspective of knowing the other films doesn't work because this film is being ignored. So right. those rules don't apply. You have to listen to the rules that were made. You have to ignore that. Right. I know no, it's I- hard, but when we're talking about this film, like those rules don't matter because they don't exist. According to us, it's 1985. Right. And so like, even then, even then ignoring that. So like, I'm like, I don't know those rules or like they don't exist. Right. Even then for me, it is so hard because this movie doesn't really know what it's doing with those rules. It's like, yeah, like he needs Jesse as like a gateway to go into the real world. And he's very interested in, he wants to come back and kill people. But like, even then Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I don't really understand. Like, I don't under Why like I don't understand 
I don't understand why he has powers. I don't understand his real purpose. Like, he's literally just, like, such a sociopath that he's like, ooh, I really want to kill people again. Like, or... or, or Well, yeah. I, I, like, well, and then also the whole, like, I just, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I, it's, there's so many things. I mean, things I get that, it. I don't. Like, he wants I to use Jesse say... as a gateway. I'm like, yeah. wh- why isn't he... Like, fear is giving Jesse, but, like, to me, I'm almost like, why would Freddy even want to come back to life? If his main goal is killing these people, why would he want to come back to life? Because he has more power in the dream world. He also, like, almost never utilizes that power in this movie, except in the very opening scene where he doesn't even kill anyone. Um, mm-hmm. And he mostly yeah, uses... he's not strong enough yet. Yeah. Right. And, he, and he, so he, like, I guess I can understand why he'd want to come out if he can also use his dream powers now in real life. Yeah. So uh, this is how I would view it. So he dies, right? And discovers he has these powers in the dream world. Right. And he, you know, in this film, Freddie comes to the realization that, you know, he's gotten power. People are talking about him. People remember him. Nancy, that girl that went crazy. That's what they talk about her in this film. So, you know, he's able to come back to like memory and come to dreams through Jesse because he's living in this house. The diary, the stories of the girl that lived there are what fuels him. It's really hard to get people to talk about him, which is how he survives because people keep it hush hush. So for him, it's this narrative of like, all right, if I can get into this boy, he's going to remember. It's been five years. That's a long time. He's going to get into this kid. And if he can come out into the real world and bring his powers, like, why wouldn't he want to do that? Like, that's going to be a winning scenario because then he can inflict his mayhem and not be trapped. Because we have to assume that he's essentially in, like, a hell world, right? Like, when he's not. Right you know, right. in the dreams of these people. So he's going to do anything he can to continue on with what brings him fucking joy, which is, mur- I mean, literally murdering children. Right. So to me, I don't have any issues with that. Like, of course, your mind has to go there. They're not really giving us that. I can just say, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. He Freddie realizes that he can bring his powers out. So he's doing everything he can to come out into this world because getting kids to talk about him has proven to be really fucking difficult, difficult. Cause that's all the only thing that adults do in this world is keep him hush hush. That's the only thing they're useful for. They're right. not going to help once he's back. The only thing they're good about is keeping the secret of Freddy Krueger. Right. I guess that makes more sense, but the movie doesn't do a great job of explaining that to me. No, but that's why I'm here. Yeah. Um, so Freddie goes, this, and I agree. This this scene is is cool. Like, and, and it's like, cool. Good. It's fun. Right. We don't get to see like Freddie like this ever again. No, because he goes on like a true yeah. kill, killing spree. Like what, at a how fucking Fourth of July pool party. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Seven. I mean, yeah, he kills 
seven total. He kills six, like just slash boiled, burned, trampled, stabbed. And then um, a guy tries to negotiate him, which I think that scene is particularly hilarious because I, I don't know it. why this guy thought he would be able, he'd be the one. He's like, whoa, man, it's cool, right? We're cool. Um, Freddie Freddy kills him um, before Lisa's parents show up and try to shoot him with a shotgun. And she like basically stops them because she realizes that this is also Jesse. Um, and so then there's this whole final scene, right? Which this to me is where the movie completely loses its legs is because now the movie is mm-hmm. on, on her, which we've discussed how we feel about that. Um, and there's like this cool setup where she goes to the warehouse and there's these like weird dogs with human heads. And I, I think that's all cool. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah. Like weird dream logic stuff. But like her entire showdown with Fred, like her entire showdown with Freddie. And this is why I don't like this, this movie is because one of the main reasons for me, it's like, it essentially comes down to you can beat him with love. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, and I'm just like, Oh no, fuck no, that does not need to be here. (laughs) Like that just doesn't have a place in this franchise. Like, and it's just so like one of the most important things. And like, it is, yes, it is about also fearlessness. Um, and it's like her love for Jesse gives him that fearlessness. So I understand that. But like one of the reasons that I think Nancy is so powerful is because she, it's not about love. It's about her standing up to Freddie. Not and, being afraid. Right. Not being afraid. And like, and like, I don't fault, like, I don't mind a character with flaws. Like Jesse doesn't need to be like a character that can get over things on his own. Like leaning on someone that he loves is fine. Like Lisa, like having to lean on her to find that fearlessness. I just think the way that it's played out is very fairy tale esque of like, and then true love wins. Um, Like the whole, you know, like she kisses Freddie to be able to get to Jesse like that stuff for me. I'm just like, it just doesn't work for me. And it might work for you guys. Like for me personally, it just, it doesn't it doesn't fit with like the tone of the movie really it doesn't fit with like 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 what we know of the of the franchise up to this point just two movies in um and it's just very like all of her stuff is so shoehorned for me like everything lisa based um because it was and like yeah and then we don't get like any real like yeah jesse is able to fight back and live but like he doesn't like Lisa, you know, like kisses Freddie and Jesse like fights back from the inside and like Freddie's lit not like lit on fire and dies and melts with another cool practical effect scene. But like Jesse never gets like a final showdown with with Freddie and I feel like his no, character they, is wrong. Yeah, he doesn't end up really getting to be the final boy. Right. He he gets to be the boyfriend. And the reins right, are given over lame. to Lisa, who gets more of sort of, you know, the quote unquote arc, a bad arc, but the supporting girlfriend to this is, I mean, it's, it's actually not a bad arc. It's just, there's nothing to, there's no filler and in support into the arc. It's literally like girlfriend and then boyfriend's in trouble, figure out what's wrong with boyfriend help boyfriend overcome that problem save boyfriend kill Mm -hmm. bad guy that's her arc which is awesome that's an amazing arc the bad part is there's nothing 
like that's literally the arc. There's, There's nothing, nothing in it. between. There's nothing yeah. in it. There's it's nothing in between. Points. It's these things happen. I do this. I do this. I do this. And nothing gets her there. You know, we know nothing about this character. She's completely. Right. It's, you know, she, she's white bread. Yeah. She's a cardboard cutout of a character that's given bullet points. And like, I, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, and again, like it's so upsetting because Jesse a hundred percent owns the role of final boy and is completely deprived of all of the, the best parts. Like because he ends up becoming the killer. Right. So there's no, the only way for him to overcome it is through her. So that's his art. Right. Is he has to realize that he is worthy. He is loved to be able to say, I have strength. Right. Cause his parents basically ignore him and treat him like right. a fucking stain on their clothes, the entire film. And so, I mean, if you think about it through that lens, less through a, you know, Oh, true love solves all, but more from a, you know, perspective of Jesse where it's like he's new, his parents treat him like shit. They don't understand him. Like he's fitting in, but he's still like he's making he's got a the hot like girlfriend. He's got like this guy who's supposed to be the bully, but he ends up befriending him. He's like got these things that are kind of going for him, but he's still like lacking confidence. And he's still like having this internal crisis going on. So much so that he's allowing this fucking psychopathic killer to be able to possess him right like nothing but insecurity and worry and you know lack of confidence within himself and then it takes knowing that a girl he's into is in love with him for him to have the confidence to go like no i am worthy like i can do this right and like i guess Part of the reason I hate that is because if a final girl did that in a movie. No, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. If that, a final girl did that, we'd be like, well, fuck that. She doesn't need a, like that dude. Like, no. that's why. But that's what he is. And that's why the movie, like, doesn't, like, feel so weird. Because they literally have a typical slasher final girl. And they just placed a, a male character into it. Right. But they so didn't even give course, him, like the cool final girl arc of the girl not needing the support of a man. Like that's what yeah. Nancy's and so like gaining strength and yeah. Right. Cause know, Nancy Glenn's in the like first movie, yeah, Glenn's useless. Yeah. And in this movie, instead of like, yeah. and you know, like normally it'd be one of those things. Like normally I'd probably be like in the role of right now, like rah, rah. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Because like you're a dumbass man and you probably do need a woman to show you that you have to accept these things about yourself. Cause it could have been played like that. It could have been played like, maybe he is given the stereotype of being this man and he can't accept his feelings and his emotions. And like, there are, they toy around with a lot of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. Like they, you know, he does, he doesn't have a lot of self-confidence and he does have all these things, but like, I, I just think they suck all the winds out of with how that last act is for is how Mm -hmm. everything comes across. It's like, it, it, it completely takes both characters. Like it takes the strength out of both characters because it just like, it's like, and true love wins. And, and it's like, that's not what this movie has been about this entire time. Like, Je- this has been, this should have been about Jesse finding acceptance in, in himself and confidence. And like, that's what this should have been about. And like, that's kind of like, 
Yes, that's what he has to do to get there technically, but we don't really see it play out that way. Like, yes, we understand that that's what happened is like, oh, now Jesse's confident. But like it all hinges on the fact that like of of love and also on like. No, that's exactly what I'm saying is like not in like the great, you know, final girls like fucking Nancy. Um, but. I mean, that's still a trope in, like, the lesser, like, the more unfortunate final girl trope or just really, like, the female heroine of a lot of stories, even outside of horror, that this is their narrative, right? Right. And so it doesn't make their – and that's, like, a question that this movie poses is, like, you can't – I this is how I feel. I'll be curious to see if you feel the same way. It's like, can you place a straight male character in the role of a final girl? That was like the question that I kept thinking. Because I remember when I first watched this movie and first heard that people got like a gay subtext from it. I'm like, well, yeah, because you're placing a male into a female role. So it's going to feel feminine. But after all of this, I really feel like it's because they're placing a straight male character into a female role written for a female. Like, that's literally, they don't change it. So, like, H2O, right? We have a final boy in that. Right. Kind of. I mean, there's, yeah. But there's no part of H2O where I get any feelings that, Josh Hartnett's character is gay or he is playing a female role. He's very much playing the final boy in a slasher. It's a role of a male character in a slasher. I think this is, I mean, I think it's a writing issue. I think it's possible to have a final boy. I just don't think it's possible with this arc. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. I think I think the biggest, it's oh, I mean, it's possible to have a final boy because one, all you, they have to do is survive, right? So like, like I mean, but to have a successful final well, boy, like when we talk about survive, right? Well, like you know what I mean though. Like we have some final girls that are just they, you know, survive, they, yeah. yeah. So like to have a when we talk about successful final girls and like the idea of it is. We see an arc, we see growth, we see this person come into their own, overcome adversity. Um, it's fight. about, right, and fight, and it's about strength. And, like, I think Jesse is, om- and, like, that's the thing that is annoying about this movie, is I think Jesse's almost there. Because, like, here's something that I actually, you know, like, and this is something that I, and I am not, in any sort of way trying to relate my experience to growing like to the queer experience at all. Cause I know those are hardships that I've never even had to face in my life, but something that, you know, I've run into a lot is like being an effeminate male and being very emotional and being very like, mm-hmm. uh, not against the grain when it comes to the, the world's perception of what a man is. And like, that is something that I've had to over, like I've run into a lot and like, Jesse's character actually reminds me a lot because Jesse is like we know that Mark is gay right in real life you know and we know like this movie has like queer subtext a hundred percent but like this movie looking at it straight on not knowing those things 
like Mark, actually, I relate to Mark a lot because a lot of this movie, he is kind of just like, he is not viewed as very manly and he's not viewed mm-hmm. like, and like, you know, those are some of the issues that he's, he's running, he's running into. Like, so I actually think there's a real arc that could happen here. There is. Yeah. And it just, it I, yeah completely falls on its face. So you're right. Yeah. It's the writing, but it's like, to yeah, me, it's like I'm, the writing almost yeah. got it right. It was like no, right I'm, up I'm until dying the end. Because literally in my notes about this whole section at the very end of it, I say, I think it would work better if it was a more obvious theme of Jesse is who, what, we would modernly call as metrosexual was dealing with masculinity and societal pressures of being a man. Yeah. No, hundred percent. I agree with that. Yeah. I think if that was like a like they play with that and like, that could have easily been like, if that's what I'm saying, like as the character is written, I feel like it's written for a woman and mm-hmm. they placed a male character into it. Um, or maybe it's not written for a woman, but it would be more believable played by a woman. We feel less like something's strange about this. This is not like playing right. Um, and I feel like if they would have pushed this idea of like masculinity and like, you know, the femininity within men, which is like, you know, I'm very glad we have a name that's not feminine men and it's metrosexual or metro or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, there is a lot of pressure that, I mean, I've seen you go through and other of my friends that have to deal with like masculinity and even, you know, men in my life who are very masculine, like my husband deal with pressures of like Mm -hmm. having to uphold that (laughs) and having to make sure that, you know, your behaviors and, you know, it's like, well, like there's expectations on me because like this is what I look like and you know this is how I'm perceived and this is how I act and that like exists for men just like it exists for women it's just in a different way right um and it's like a there's so much of this film that's like a missed opportunity right and it's the big part of this like final girl and final boy part is that our final girl is non-existent as a character. She literally just has, yeah, bullet points of an arc, a good arc with nothing to back it up. And our final boy is robbed of any sort of, it's like in the remake of prom night, it's like you get all this buildup and our final girl is literally robbed of any strength or payoff. And she just gets tortured the whole fucking movie. And then that's it. She's literally just there to be tortured. Yeah. That's not a movie anybody wants to watch. Mm -hmm. No. And then like watch somebody get fucked around the whole time and be like, okay, that's it. Bye. Right. And then like, and like you say, I feel like it'd work better that way too. And I also feel like, and then, and then, but then you like actually queer. Right. And so that's the thing that I like, right. Like, cause like if you, if you go that route, that's cool too. But then you like, I worry that you alienate the queer subtext, which like I think is very important in this movie. But the problem is this ending once again, it's like, and then he kissed a girl and made it all better. I'm like, Oh, okay. So like now you lose all your queer subtext. You don't lose it, but like it, it just like it. Yeah. You just have to pretend. Right. I mean, like as a queer viewer, it's like, well, that didn't happen. Right. Like, right. Because there's so much about like overcoming bullies and accepting yourself. And it's like all this really positive messages. And then it ends with like, and if you just like kiss a girl, it's all better. And I'm like, oh, 
boo. Like I just, and like, I get it that like, again, I understand that the message is like, it was that love that allowed him to find his fearlessness, which again, great message for like, that would be and great. It's true. If, right. Yeah. Like, and that's a lot of the times like you, you find strength in love, all kinds of oh, love. Absolutely. You find yeah. strength in the love of your friends and the love of your family. Like that truly does like bring you strength. I'm a much stronger person being married with a child than I was single. Right. hundred percent. But that's again, like that's us saying like those things do exist, but the film is not giving us that. That's right. us saying like that could happen. That right. could have been a reason why the kiss gave him strength, but nothing up to this point. All we get is him like awkwardly tonguing her stomach to like have any point of reference in their romantic relationship. Yeah. Like her just going, Jesse, let me help you. Jesse, let me help you. Jesse, let me help you. And him being like, got to deal with this on my own. Go away. Okay. Let me lick your tummy. Okay. I love you too. Like movie over. That's the relationship. Yeah. It's really odd. Um, Anyway, so she does beat Jesse. She beats Freddie. Jesse comes back, and then it ends with our classic like stinger where they're on the bus, and it's very similar to our opening scene of the movie. And they're like saying how it's all over, and then Carrie behind them and the sea behind them gets stabbed through the back with the finger knives, and like the bus drives off the road into the distance, and that's how our movie ends. Um, so like we said, uh, up top we have, I think we've talked about them a lot. So we have Jesse and Kim as our final boy and our final girl. Um, I do think it's interesting. B has notes here that Wes did give notes that Kim needed to be more involved in the movie. Um, which is true. Oh, yeah. Lisa. She's even more, or yeah. Um, which is, uh, true even more than she was at this point. Uh, what is your favorite kill? Um, I, I mean, I mean, I'm going to say if you want to, you can cheat and just say the whole pool scene. I am going to cheat and say the whole pool scene because I just really, that's always been a standout scene for me. I absolutely adore it. And there's a part of me that is excited anytime Freddie like comes into the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that extremely terrifying and interesting and it just has so much energy to it and mayhem and even if like the logic of why he can do it isn't quite there it is there for me like I can connect the dots enough that it's okay um and it's like the first glimpse of sort of the I feel like (laughs) Fuck, talking about slashers is really weird sometimes because I'm like, man, this is like Freddy's dream, right? He's a fucking child murderer. And here he comes upon a fucking pool party of teens acting poorly, drinking, hooking up like bad kids, right? Quote unquote. And he's fucking like, shit, I can kill like multiple in one shot. Like this is a buffet of fine ass kids right here. Like, that's exciting. Right. And so I almost, I mean, and this is very much with, like, a love of Freddy as a character. Right. But, like, that excites me for him. Like, and it's so fun. It's just something we don't get in any of the other movies. And so I've always been partial to it. I 
think we'll see. Ryan and I are both going to do a rewatch through all of them. Mm. At this point, my past ranking, the last time I rewatched all of these, which has been a long time since I've done all of them at once. It's been probably about 10 years. This was my least favorite film. It's at the bottom of my list. Um, so Under the remake? In- no. Oh, okay. I don't think the remake existed when oh, okay. I did this. Gotcha. No, no, no. No, no, no. Um, the remake is by far the worst film of all of these, which yes. if you guys listen to the podcast, you know those are rare words coming from us. We are remake fans. I hate the Nightmare remake. Yeah. Um, but this was pre-remake, and um, this was at the bottom of my list, but it's always been one of my favorite scenes. So, yeah. Um. I'm going to go with Ron because the transformation scene uh, mm. is incredible. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to cheat a little also, too. It's... All of the slashing is really good in this film. Like all of those effects yeah. got, definitely got amped up. Yeah. Like the claw through the door. Um, like, mm-hmm. and, and again, I even like just that whole, the way that whole scene plays out, the transformation scene. And then like the room kind of takes like this purple hinge and it gets very like dream fever. Um, so I like, I like all that. I'm ready for the um, outrage that we don't pick the very famous like Carrie scene of him clawing through her in the bus, but that's a great kill. Very good. It, effect, yeah, it's but. great. It's just also like it's a. I mean, it's a one-two punch, and it's at the end of the movie. Um, it's our like stinger kill, and I'm not saying those can't be your favorite, but like I don't know. Uh, cool. yeah, position in the horror landscape. Um, it is the black sheep of the nightmare like franchise outside of the remake <laughs> um yeah mm-hmm. um it has become like a very well-known like queer icon movie especially since i mean forever but like in the limelight um since never sleep again really um and then i think scream queen will even further push that um and that's the thing mm-hmm. is like i actually everything i just said about this movie and we talked about this at the top like I still think this movie is important to exist. Like I wouldn't want to erase this movie from the canon of nightmare at all. Um, it's fascinating. It's so fascinating, especially with the backstory. Like you add that in uh-huh. and it goes from something that is bewildering and interesting to fascinating. Um, so. Yeah. And I mean, here's the reality. And it's like I said, I was going to touch on it is that this was rushed. This was extremely rushed. We have a first-time writer. We have a director who's in over his head. Um, We have a studio that's pressured to put out a film within a year of the original coming out. You have a director that's refusing to return. Um, It's There's no direction in this movie. Um, The writer was on set making changes as the film went, you've got characters who were creating like Robert England is Freddie and he, and that there's good and bad to that. And mm-hmm. Freddie is who he is because of Robert, but there are choices that he makes that are very separate of what the director or writer of each installment has chosen. And those choices uh-huh. and how he acts 
very heavily influence the perception of the films. So when you have all of those things coming together, this is what you get. I mean, uh-huh. and I just think that's very, and I mean, like I said, I treasure this franchise. It's like super special to me. I I like this movie. I don't, I don't love it. It's not like high on my like rewatch list. It's not something that, but I do still like it. Uh-huh. Um, but it's got a lot of fucking problems. And I think the easiest people to point that to is really like a poor script that took notes. And I think I, and I honestly think like, and like I said, I love Wes. I think he's incredible. Fucking Chaskin should have never taken his notes. He should have never been like, yeah, let me just change my script and add in this final role because Wes Craven said I should. Like, no, then rework your entire script. Don't try and work in a character halfway through your movie because this is what happens. Uh It doesn't work. We don't believe her. We don't root for her. Her arc doesn't make sense even though it's there. And that's what happened. It's, and I think that Cheskin got maybe more heat and it should have been shared a little bit more with Jack Shoulder. I'm going to be very interested to watch Alone in the Dark and see what I think about that movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I am too. I don't know if I've seen, I've seen um, Arachnid, but not since I was like a kid. Yeah. Um, I definitely don't remember it. Other films. I don't remember it. Yeah. I remember when it came out. I remember it was like really buzzy. But anywho, time to rank this movie. Are you guys so excited? Yeah. At the end of every episode, we rank our movies. And please remember, this is based on what we think of this movie <laughs> as a slasher film. And that is what we base our by entire itself. ranking system on as a slasher film by itself. Mm-hmm. This movie ranks incredibly low for me. It is mm-hmm. barely a slasher movie. It's a possession movie. Yeah, it muddles the fight. Like, it has a final boy and a final girl, but it muddles, mm-hmm. like, a lot of that. I mean, we like, Freddie barely plays. He's playing cat and mouse with Jesse, but it's not even really. Like, he does the little wink and a nod, like, where when he kills Ron and he looks in the mirror. But other than that, he's not really, like, he... he well, I mean, because he stops not... existing in this film and becomes Jesse and vice yeah. versa. And so, yeah, I, I mean, like when I look at like slasher tropes and form, the, I think the, I think our music is good. Um, I think that mm-hmm. Jesse actually is an excellent final boy. Um, and then because of a bad directing and writing choices, he falls on his face and never completes his arc. And we, I mean, we discuss this at ad nauseum, but like, and then it's thrust into a character that we care nothing about. Um, you know, like we get, we obviously know the story, the backstory of Freddie, but I even think like the laziness of having Nancy's journal there as like our, our past, um, like trauma, like thing <laughs> that like, you know, like, <laughs> I just, I just think this movie. So I know, I love it. They talk about it on um, Attack of the Queer Wolf, and they're like, "Who's just? You're telling me that like the realtor didn't notice there's a fucking diary of a crazy girl 
like not in this closet. The parents didn't find it. He doesn't find it. It takes his girlfriend to find this fucking journal in the closet. Like what the fuck were they thinking? Yeah. It's just like, and like, it's like you said, so much of this, it's, it's no one's fault. And, and other, and like some people's fault altogether. Like, you know, like it was just such a rush job and you can see it. Like you can see how quick they had to slap this movie together. And it it falters because of it um it you know does. despite it some really like really does. cool practical effects it's just i don't i'm looking like it's just a missed opportunity that's what it is it's low yeah <laughs> all right like when I look um, at this, let me think Like, so I'm literally looking one, at, like, I still know what you did last summer. You're thinking, like, I still know that range? Right. The, like, I'm kind of looking at it because it's, like, that's I a mean, very similar movie. Rush like production. Yeah. Falters a lot. Um, just d- doesn't really, like, still has oh some God. of the tropes in what place, the but they're all kind of sloppy all and messy. This is that um, you know, I know what you did was such a perfect blueprint of a slasher that I still know just decided to follow the wrong sequel. Right. It followed fucking nightmare instead of, you know, let's say Friday. Right. Or Halloween too. Yeah. I was like, Oh wait, this is, this is the sequel we make. Right. And we're like, no, 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 no. That's not the sequel you make. Um, Yeah. I mean the big thing, right. So like, Normally, when we're talking about it, we rarely have, like, the strong final arcs of, you know, girl or boy when we're talking about movies that end up this low. Like, or they'll rank high and we'll be like, but there's a really shitty final girl. Um, Like, Urban Legend. Like, that movie, top tier. Every slasher trope. And then they give us a really fucking shitty final girl. Um, This is kind of the opposite. We have, like, the final, like, guy territory ranking really high. But... Um, our killer's lacking. Our killer is our final boy, which is not a slasher trope. That's not a thing. Um, that's not something that you do. You can play with that, but your killer still needs to be at the forefront. Right. And Freddy disappears so wholeheartedly in this um, that... I, that's probably why I love the party scene so much. And I'm like, oh, finally he's here. Hi, nice to see you. Right. And like the scenes he shows um, up in before that are impactful. Like the scene where he confronts Jesse uh-huh. in his hallway is really cool. And like, you know, even the but the original bus scene, he's still like in the shadows. He's using his gloves. He reaches up and then yeah. he cut away. Yeah. The teasing the cat and mouse, like we get there. Um, I think it also lacks in the fact that it honestly kind of does itself a disservice by ignoring the first movie. Like the lore that we get about Nancy is so shoehorned in with that weird diary thing. And that's it. Yeah. Um, The legend, the only stuff about the legend of Freddie we really get is like, he keeps going down to the basement, the furnace and like, he finds the glove himself, but there's no real, like, this is what happened. 
in the past and this is why it's happening to you. Like they kind of get muddled in that. Right. Um, which. <laughs> I, I mean, I could see raising it a little bit because we have a really strong final boy, but he, like I said, he doesn't get a full arc, but like that, I would say to raise it maybe around, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot about this that like is, is reminiscent of Candyman, um, just with the whole using someone as a vessel and this tool. Mm -hmm. And, and so like a lot of that is very similar and um, you know, like that also had the same sort of thing. She's like a very strong final girl character, but her arc is ultimately cut short and kind of weird. Um, so like, I see a lot of comparisons like there, so we can mm -hmm. look at like more Candyman range. I think Candyman is stronger than this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Deep Red stronger than this. I would say maybe it's better than Hospital Massacre. Yeah, because what happens in Hospital Massacre is we have a cool killer with a couple suspenseful scenes and literally. I mean, not a. Much else the most sh the most non like nonsense past trauma like just thrown in there for the hell of it and then a, a final girl who is fights back but has no arc mm -hmm. so i could mm -hmm. like you know like and at least even though freddie's barely in this he's still freddie and like roberts does such a good job of he's making him terrifying at least and i think if you focus on the first you know 30 minutes or so that we have Freddie that's still very much in more in line with the before he fully takes on Jesse mm -hmm. we have more of our slasher right trajectory with yeah. him so I, f I feel more comfortable with it there yeah so at, our new um, 40 yeah yeah Okay, so that's our new 40 uh, in between Deep Red and Hospital Massacre. Um, in case you guys were wondering, too, we did cover Nightmare on Elm Street in the previous episode, and it is our new number one movie. So that's up at the top there. Um, so that's it's funny because we haven't done a lot. We've done three sequel like we've done three uh, franchises of of the original and its sequel. Um, and so one of them is I know what you did last summer, which is very similarly ranked because I know what you did last summer is ranked seventh, and then I still know is 46. So that's 39 mm -hmm. spots in between. This is 39 spots in between number one and number 40. Ooh. So it's the same amount of spots. Yeah. And then the only other one is Friday the 13th, part one up. and two. And very interesting that Friday the th that one. Friday the 13th part two is ranked fourth and then the, the original is ranked fifth. Um, so that one is very an outlier. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. The list, it's crazy. The list is like, you know, the bigger it gets, the more like, yeah, it's fun. I love looking through it and being like, oh yeah. All right. That's where that one is. And I know. And it's funny. I, I love when someone like Bobby the other day goes, Oh, you ranked that that low? And I was like, or it was Candyman. He goes, 
you bring Candyman that low? It's like, well, like we have our reasons, you know? And then, but it was funny too, because he was super stoked. He's like, oh, look how high hatch it is. And so like, I, yeah. I love, like, I love hearing what other people have to say about it too. Well, no, you can look, like if you go and look at our list, like, of course, like, well, I mean, there's a, there's, I feel like a surprise in our top 10 is that number 10 is happy death day. Which I think, I think so too. Yeah. I think a lot of people, if they look at the, you know, uh, movies in our list would be like, what the heck? Same. Like, and then especially I think in the top 20, you know, we've got, um, our top 20 stage is fright. really wild. Yeah. Uh, Town the Dreaded Sunder remake. Yeah. Valentine from 2001 hatchet. Um, and then, you know, giallo bay of blood um crazy ass silent night deadly night like we're like all the remake of black black christmas black xmas and, the, and, and then, then a my, fucking mtv made yep. for tv movie yeah you know my super psycho sweet 16 and that's what's just so fun about this is that it doesn't matter how it's put out a slasher is a slasher and it you know it's it's cut and dry in some ways. Like there's the blueprint. There's like, you know, Friday and my bloody Valentine and, you know, Halloween that's setting us up for these films. But then there's so much opportunity for advancements and mixing it up and offering new things to the subgenre that we explore. Like, you know, the big reason Happy Death Day is number 10. Um, it's super fun. And then things that you would think that have gone down in history as iconic slashers like Candyman, like child's play you find a lot lower on our list uh -huh. um because you know when you really analyze it within the subgenre, it's not quite there it's fascinating yeah no it's really fun um yeah so that we are that's it for nightmare for now for us uh yeah. the next movie that you'll hear us record Although it's probably not the next, the next episode we're recording, but the next one you'll hear is April Fool's Day. And then after that, we'll have Alone in the Dark. Um, and that's going to have our producer, Brendan Klein, on it as a guest, which is going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, yes. yeah, we got those two lined up for you. Uh, we told you we're going to try to stay two movies ahead so you guys can follow along. And so we'll, we're going to try to keep that up, too. Um, that's it. We'll be back in two weeks, and until then, keep screaming.